Thank you very much for the warm welcome we've already received. It's, uh, I know visiting speakers say how nice it is to be with you, but it really is. We do keep in touch, actually, because on my phone, it always flashes up when you're on YouTube. And so from time to time, I will just check up on how you're doing and see the backs of your heads and a few more things during your times together here on a, a Sunday morning. It was in 1986, Ronald Reagan was the president of America and the first lady, his wife, Nancy, headed up a campaign to try to prevent drug addiction among teenagers. They trained up hundreds of people at the White House to go out as coaches, to go to major cities, to draw together young people from schools into theatres and gymnasiums. And in the Bronx area of New York City, 3,000 teenagers came together in a theatre and the coach stood before them and said, I need one volunteer. A young guy, about 13, perhaps 14, walked forward and went onto the platform with his baseball cap back to front, which was a novelty back in those days. And the first thing the coach said to him was this, I want you to take all your clothes off. He said, I'm not doing that. He said, I have a direct line to the White House. I can contact the most powerful man in the world, the President of the United States of America. And he took out his phone, which was about the size of a brick, if you remember back then. And he said, I could contact him now. And the young guy said, I don't care who you contact, you can talk to the man in the moon if you like, but there's no way I am taking all of my clothes off. And then he took out a $20 note, which was a lot more money back then than it is now. And he said, I will give you this if you will take your clothes off. And he said, I don't mind how much you give me, I'm not doing that. And then he looked at the students and he said, what should he do? And 2,999 voices chanted back, get them off take your clothes off and he said I'm not doing that and then the coach said to them do you know what he has just done he has said no to doing something which is stupid taking all of his clothes off in public before you he has said no to power even the most powerful man in all of the world ordering him to do that and he has said no to money, even a lot of money. And he's also said no to peer pressure. All of you telling him to do this. Now, if you can say no in here, you can say no out there. Just say no to drugs. And that was the slogan back then. But do you know something? It didn't work. So they quietly allowed that slogan to fall to the ground. Because they came to realise that people respond more readily to a positive yes message than they do to a negative no message. 
And isn't that the great thing about the gospel that we have? Oh, I know it starts with bad news. We're out of connection with God and we need that connection and God has made it possible for us to have that connection and to be reconciled and relate to him. But then it's good news because it's possible for all of that to happen, that we can know Jesus who said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly and to know, as the New Testament says, a joy and peace in our believing and a purpose for our lives. But the problem is it's not working for a lot of people who regularly will attend church. It's not that they're about to stop attending church. They're going to continue, but we're more enduring the Christian life rather than enjoying the Christian life. We're more existing in church rather than really participating and wrapped up in what it's all about. We know that the New Testament says, come near to God and he will come near to us. And we seek to come near to God and we're going to continue to seek to do just that. We're not going to give up on that. But we're not always sure that God is following through. That we're coming near to him and we're sensing that he has come near to us. A little boy was having a bedtime story from the Bible told to him by his mum before he went to sleep at night. And that evening it happened to be the story of Daniel delivered from the lion's den. And come the end of the telling of that story, he looked wide-eyed at his mum and he said, you know, mum, God was much more exciting back then than he is now, wasn't he? And we get that, don't we? We understand where he is coming from. Now, why does God stay in the shadows? Well, of course, one answer is, if he didn't, could you just imagine what would happen? If every time you approach God and you sense that God now is at work in and through my life, you would not have found a place, you would not have found a seat in this building this morning for the crowds that have been waiting outside for the doors to open like a sale room so that they could come in do the things that God is saying to instantly be zapped with the blessings of God. People will be manipulated. People will be coerced. So God says, yes, I will give you tasters of the blessing in the here and now, but the main blessing will come in eternity. It has to be that way because I don't want people forced to have to respond to me. I want people to acknowledge me freely in all of their ways so that I can straighten things out for them. But nevertheless, we do get this when we sense that somehow or the other God is in the shadows. Now God knew that we would struggle with this. And that's why, among other things, he gave us the book of Esther. It's about the providential involvement of God in our lives. God's providence is different to his miraculous. In providence, God takes the natural and uses it supernaturally. 
And such is his power, he can even take the bad things and make them work together for good. That's not saying that they are good in this broken world, but he can take them and make them work together for good. That's why the Apostle Paul said God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Now, turning to the book of Esther, we're into a real page-turner. Whoever wrote this story, and it's a real story in history, they knew how to write up a story. They understood. In fact, during the Second World War, the Nazis banned the public reading of this because they didn't want people seeing how Jews won against a holocaust. It didn't work. And every march, if you go to a, a synagogue, you will find there is one day when the whole reading of this story will happen in the synagogue. It's a fun day. They'll dress up to go there. They'll have nice bakeries and nice cakes, and they'll enter into the reading. So when the rabbi is reading the story and the name of Mordecai is mentioned, they will go hooray and they will cheer. And when Haman, the hater of the Jews, is mentioned, they will boo. They really get wrapped up in the story. <coughs> you look friendly, so let me just try this for a moment, shall we? <laughs> When I mention the name of Mordecai, just cheer. And when I mention the name of Haman, boo, okay? Mordecai. Hey. Haman. Boo. Very good. We won't do it again, mind you. And the reason why is, if I was to ask you to do it each time, the name of this Jew hater is mentioned in the book of Esther. That's 51 times. And I wouldn't have time for anything else to say, and don't go hooray at that. <laughs> but the value of Esther is this. It gives us a window to let the light in on how God at times is at work in our world and in our individual lives. And if we can get this message, if we can grasp this, I tell you this, it's going to give us a confidence in our daily walk as we seek to acknowledge him, to know that he is around, is wrapped up, is involved with us, even if we're not sensing that, and it will, whatever is happening, steady us. Now the setting is Persia, which is modern-day Iran. This is the story of a stunningly beautiful young woman. Her name that she had been given as a Jew was Hadassah, which in the English would be something like myrtle, and you might know how the myrtle tree has a flower which is star-like. So you could say that her name is Star, but she's not really the star of the book that is named after her. Esther is the pagan name that she was given. These people are in exile, away from their land. She is an orphan. And her older cousin, Mordecai, has helped her to grow up. And it's no accident that the king is looking for a replacement queen for the one 
not in favour now. And it's no accident that she gets chosen, probably against her will, to be the next queen. And it's no accident that Mordecai heard a plot from a couple of guys called Big Thang and Teresh to try and assassinate the king, gets word through, but doesn't get any honour or recognition or reward for what he has said. And it's no accident that Haman hates all Jews, particularly because Mordecai won't honour him by bowing the knee, even though he is number two now in the empire. And it's no accident that Mordecai contacts Esther and says, you've got to do something about this. And she responds, but you see, if he doesn't, as my king, put his scepter out toward me, then my life finishes at that point. And it's no accident that Esther then follows through on this and invites the king, along with that nice friend of yours called Haman, for a banquet. But it's no accident when the king, who was no fool, said, now what's this all about, Queen Esther? She loses her nerve. And she said, will you come back tomorrow for another banquet and bring Haman with you? And it's no accident that that night the king can't sleep, not just any old night, but that particular night that he cannot sleep. What do you do when you can't sleep? Do you put on a Craig or Derek Stringer sermon? (laughs) Don't answer that one. But we do something or the other, I guess, don't we? Do you know what he did? He brought the history books out on his reign. I mean, if there's anything guaranteed to get you to sleep at night, it's that, isn't it? All the names and dates of that. And his eyes are just drooping. Then suddenly he hears this story about these two men who tried to assassinate him. What did we do for the person who helped me there? And they look at the record. Nothing at all. We've got to honour him. And it's no accident that meanwhile... At the advice of his wife, Haman has said, build a gallows and make it bigger than any other to kill Mordecai on it. Sweet creature, wasn't she? And it's no accident at the second banquet she reveals her hand. Haman is trying to kill me and all of my kind, the Jews. The toy company that produced the Barbie doll in America also produces what they call over there G.I. Joe, the soldier. And in one factory run, the voice boxes got mixed up. (laughs) So G.I. Joe was saying, I'm going to shop until I drop. And Barbie was saying, hit the ground hard, hard, hard. Well, Barbie, if you know the rest of the story, that Esther is suddenly turns from being a fashion icon and a clothes horse into something much more, more a a G.I. Joe in how she reacts. But let's get the message. A coincidence is when God chooses to do something anonymously. God is the backstage choreographer. In this story, God's ways are behind the scenes, but he moves all the scenes that he is behind. But the big question is, how do we partner with him in what he is doing? 
how do we so submit to him and acknowledge him that he can include us in his purposes and his plans? How can that actually happen? Are we okay on the thing here now? Great, good, thank you. How can we do that? You see, Esther has a choice to stay silent or step up. God didn't need her and he doesn't need us. He can get on without us if he chooses to. But he wants to involve us in his ongoing purposes. He wants to partner with us in his plans to see his will in earth done down here on earth. And it's our loss if we don't acknowledge him in the right ways so that we move in line with what he wants to be about so we don't spend time but invest it in ways that will outlast it. And from what happened to Esther and how she reacted, we can learn three steps. And if we will acknowledge God in these ways, we will step in line with his purposes. We'll not blow it or miss it with him. Now, what are those steps? Well, here's the first one. Affirm God is present in your life. Now that's what Mordecai is telling Esther when he says, you realise you are Jewish. You may have kept it quiet from others. It may be secret, but it's going to come out. And you are. And for every Jew, particularly back then, wherever they were, they were aware of the fact the Lord God is the only God, the one who is above all, and the one who is with them. And he is reminding him of that, that reminding that young woman of that fact. Now, I'm quite sure of this. She had no nice feelings at that time. Oh, isn't that wonderful? I get to go into the king unbidded, but I've got this wonderful feeling that God's with me in this. No. So we don't feel God is with us. That doesn't mean that God isn't with us. It just means that our feelings aren't registering that fact. But you see, feelings are fickle. They go up and down like a yo-yo. If they didn't, it would just prove you haven't got any. So reckon on the fact God is with you, whether you feel that fact or not. I know that the writer wants us to sense that. And you know why? If you read English commentaries here, they will say there is no mention of God in the book of Esther, and they're wrong. Because if you read what the rabbis will say about this as scholars, they will show you that God is actually in the text there, but in acrostic form which is how it needed to be in the kind of empire where they were, or it would be read as subversive literature. Four times God's name is there, twice forward spelt out as an acrostic when it's referencing a Jew, and twice backward when it's referencing a Gentile. And there's one extra I would add, because in acrostic form it also says, I am. And that's a title that Jesus took up. So God is there, but do you see it? In the shadows. So we're 
in a situation where it seems God is out of our sight, but we are never out of his sight. In recent decades, there has been a popular song, and I hate it. (laughs) From a distance. God is watching us from a distance. No, no, no. God is not at a distance. Well, he is at a distance, but he's also close to us. That's why the New Testament says he will never leave us and never forsake us. That's why you shouldn't be afraid, he says. That's why you should have confidence about life, says the writer to the Hebrews, because God is always with you. So affirm God is present. God's eternal purposes will not be thwarted. Reckon upon that fact. And then you're ready for the second way in which we acknowledge him. Ask God in prayer. People read this story and again they say, prayer is never mentioned in the book. And again, I disagree. Because fasting is mentioned. And for the Jews, fasting and prayer was like salt and pepper. Or for us, fish and chips. (laughs) They always go together. So prayer is mentioned there. When should we pray and fast? Actually, there's nothing in the Bible in the New Testament that says you have to do that. But there are times when you may think, this is the right time, this crisis situation is the occasion when I need to pray and fast. In fact, you'll find three occasions in the New Testament when early followers of Christ would pray and fast. When they had, first of all, a big burden, probably they were off their food anyway, and they would pray, and they would use that time when they would eat as a means of a cutting edge to pray through a particular issue. And then if you look in the Acts of the Apostles, you will find where there was the task of choosing elders. They would do it through prayer and fasting. And then there was another time when God was at a distance. You remember how Jesus said that when you're at a wedding, that is not the time to fast, that's the time to feast. However, the opposite would also be true if you sense that God, your heavenly bridegroom, it is a distance from you. That's the time to say, Lord, I need to know you better. I need to connect with you in a wiser and better way. How should we pray and fast? Actually, there's more in the Bible about how not to do it (laughs) rather than how to do it. So you walk into church on a Sunday morning and someone says, you don't look too well. Oh, that's because I've been fasting. Oh, what a godly person. And Jesus said, that's not how to do it. Don't make a big show about it. And notice Esther says, make sure that people come together in their times of fast. In other words, pray with other people. That shows just how serious you are about what you are seeking to take place. And we don't pray to inform God of anything. He knows everything. There's never been a time when God says, oh, that's a new thought. (laughs) Didn't know about that. Never been a time like that. He knows the eight billion people that we're told a few days ago are on planet Earth. He knows each person better than they know themselves. But he still wants to hear our prayers. 
There is a prayer that God will never answer. Do you know what it is? It's the prayer we don't pray. And there are times when we have not, simply because we ask not. I know we can ask wrongly, but I think more the problem of not asking at all. I'm sure that like me, you've been in a situation, you've wanted to acknowledge God in all of your ways, you've affirmed his presence in your life despite your emotions, you've asked God to step in and to do something in that situation and wow, it's wonderful when he does. But there are other times and it doesn't work quite like that. Now that doesn't mean God is not interested and not involved because he is reckon upon that fact tell God your situation Lord a gallows has been built it's the gallows of a terminal illness it's the gallows of a family or marriage problem it's a gallows of a lack of a job Tell God that situation. God never has a crisis. We do. But God doesn't. So tell him about our crisis. And one more thing. To acknowledge him and submit to him in all of our ways. Act obediently toward God. Esther does. I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish... I perish. And this was no small thing, by the way, not with a man like her husband. We have more history about these times outside of the Bible that back up this story than any other portion of Scripture, and there's plenty for that. We know, for example, there was a key businessman and wealthy man called Pythias, and he had five sons. And four of them had been constricted into the army because they were having major problems with Greece and he was trying to stop that. And he asked very nicely for one of the sons, the youngest, to stay with him at home to look after him in his old age. And the king ordered for the youngest son to be cut in two halves and for an army unit to be driven and marched through the two halves of his youngest son. That's the kind of character that she is going to have to go into now. And Esther survived, but don't you realise there was no guarantee that she would survive. By the way, here's a prayer that you can pray, and I guarantee the answer in about 30 seconds. If you're a follower of Christ, guarantee it. Lord, would you show me something in my life you do not like? Now, I guarantee he will say, maybe he'll put his hand on this attitude or that action. He may say, my child, there's nothing wrong. Doesn't mean I'm perfect, means I'm just as I should be at this point in time. But if he puts his hand upon something, act obediently toward him. Be doers of God's word. Success in life is not in the planning. It's in the doing. And it makes a difference saying yes to God.
there are two significant days in our lives. The day we were born and the day we knew what we were born for. And if you're wondering why am I in this position, why in this location, why in this job, why in this relationship? Well, apart from anything else, as Paul says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. A day may come when circumstances change. And then you need to act upon that change of circumstance. We don't have to. We get to. Wasn't that true of Jesus? You realise that he fulfilled providentially and prophetically 300 predictions in his coming that first time to planet Earth. And all through his ministry and his life, he would affirm God as Father. There was just one occasion when he didn't have that close feeling of God, and that's when he was on the cross. He had been asking, Lord, is there some other way in the Garden of Gethsemane other than the cross? And learning that that was the only way we could be forgiven, reconciled and accepted by God and given a future and a hope. He said, your will be done, which wasn't resignation, case or ass or ah, whatever will be, will be, but it was resolution, a commitment, a choice. He acted in what he knew was God's will in heaven. And you know the outcome of all of that? That we can be a forgiven people. We can be a people in a relationship with God. We can be a people who know through his saving death any sense of guilt going. And through the fact that he rose, ascended, and by the power of the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, to do through us those things that can lead to love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, and so much more in our experience, which ultimately will end with a banquet, which we needn't be frightened about. That's the final picture in the New Testament. And that's where every one of us who follows him is heading. Step in line with God's purposes. And I'll tell you this, you'll never regret it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Gracious Father, we thank you that the years can roll away from a story like this. And we can see its relevance into our own lives. Lord, we thank you. There are times when you work in a hidden way in our lives so that we're not being coerced and others are not being coerced to respond to you, but we would respond to every initiative in our lives that you are making and seek to submit and acknowledge you in all of our ways, to make our paths straight. May it be through Jesus Christ. Amen.